Hi everyone, Dan Sims here from Rebel Global and welcome back to the Mole Cheese Collective podcast. Today, I'm handing over the reins to my good friend, writer, communicator and food champion, Hilary McNeppen. Hilary, welcome. Dan Sims, thanks for having me. So today you caught up with Michael from Pecora Dairy. How was your conversation? Do you know, it was wonderful, actually. He is quite the poet. From the beginning of our interview, he actually described where he was sitting in his land at Robertson in New South Wales. And it's an overused word often, but his passion is evident and almost palpable and is maintained through the whole conversation to the end of actually how he explains about pasteurised milk, unpasteurised milk, and what he's hoping for for the future. And it was really inspiring. Tell me, he has been doing some raw milk cheeses. Did he talk about that? He touched on it. He also talked about that there's nothing to be afraid of with unpasteurised milk. And I think it's really worth hanging on to the chat, just finding out what he says at the end. Awesome. Can't wait. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mold Cheese Collective podcast. My name is Hilary McNevin, and I have been handed the reins today from Mr. Dan Sims, and I am about to interview the one, the only Michael Keynes from Pecora Dairy up in Robertson in New South Wales. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the Mold Cheese Collective. Good morning. Thank you. How are you? And where are you? Where, where I am is I'm sitting at the top of a ramp of our shearing shed and it's a very brisk winter's morning. Yeah. And as I look out over our pastures, there is quite a bit of our pastures that is completely white, covered in frost. Yeah. And, um, and other parts of our pasture where the first few rays of the morning sun are just starting to turn that into dew and you can see the bright green grass starting to poke through. Really is a magical time, I think, in winter on generally inland and get a bit of frost and things. I think, you know, that nice crisp coolness is is actually quite uh, relieving and quite, I think. Our origin story is is one where, where my wife, Cressida and I both grew up in this area, the Southern Highlands, Illawarra. We both grew up here, but we found ourselves back in Sydney as we went to, we both went to university and we met and had corporate careers and children. We found ourselves hankering to get back home and to experience more of the wide open spaces. And we started to think about a tree change Mm -hmm. and we tried a few different things. We've always, always loved fermentation and things like wine and bread and salamis and cheese so we were really looking for something to do and it's a little bit that uh, we found sheep cheese making and sheep dairying found us because we got some sheep principally to keep the grass down because in some respects I'm a lazy farmer in the sense that I really didn't want to sit on a ride on lawnmower on my weekends so we got we got some sheep to keep the grass down And pretty soon things happened like sheep rejected their lambs and we had to milk them out to get the colostrum. And and then one day we just didn't stop milking them and we kept the milk and Cressida would milk them during the day and I'd head on to Sydney to work in my corporate job and on weekends we'd make cheese and some of the first few few attempts were disasters so we decided to go and get educated. (laughs) So uh, there was the National Centre for Dairy Education there in Victoria. And we've spent a lot of time doing those courses. You know, we've been to um, and done the Mons course in France. We have Yvonne Lachère, who's a French consultant. He comes to our farm every few years. 
you must learn from your mistakes. You must read widely. But, uh, you know, we're, we're getting there. There are a number of cheeses now where we feel we're on top of our game. I was going to ask you about why sheep and why sheep milk, but you've already answered that question. But tell me, do you think sheep milk is underrated in Australia? It's becoming more popular. Yeah. And I think, uh, I, I think that when traditionally when people have had um, – had cheese especially if it's european cheese mm-hmm. it's not always been so obvious that what they're eating is a sheep milk cheese so so i'll give you an example yeah. at farmers markets quite often we'll have people come up and and have um and 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 uh, try some of the cheese and they'll say as an offhand comment wow i've never had sheep milk cheese and you sort of look at them and you think, well, and sometimes I just, uh, I, I verbalise it anyway. I say, well, you know, I bet you have. And yes. they sort of look at me a bit funny and I said, well, have you had Italian pecorino? Have you had Greek feta? Have you had a Spanish manchego? Have you had a Greek, have you had a Greek Cypriot halloumi? Yes. And, um, and quite often they've had numerous um, uh, they've had quite a number of those cheeses, including ones like French uh, Roquefort. And you say, well, you've been eating sheep milk cheese. And they're jaw drops. So basically you're educating yourselves to educate a larger audience. When you pick up a, a, um, a packet of Roquefort or Pecorino Romano or Greek Feta, it doesn't, it doesn't often say right right on the front of the packaging it doesn't often have a picture of a sheep or it doesn't often say this is a sheep milk cheese Mm -hmm. you quite often have to go to the ingredients list and see that it's says use milk um, as one of the ingredients or you just have to know that those cheeses are sheep milk cheeses and of course most people aren't quite as knowledgeable as um as professional cheese makers so I, i don't blame people but you you hit the nail on the head, Hillary, that there is, we are taking the Australian cheese consuming public on a journey. And mm. bit by bit, people, people are appreciating Australian cheese and its complexity and it, uh, and it, um, and it gives them cause to, to, to question, you know, different animals and different styles and how does that apply to the domestic context. And it's a good thing. It's a, it really is a good thing. There's a growth in the industry at the moment. Well, local produce is always important, I believe, and particularly at the moment in the world we're living in right now. Um, how has COVID-19 and the lockdown affected you and your family and the sheep? Well, uh, thankfully, as I sit here right now, uh, I can honestly say that we've done well and we're, we're sitting here with our cheese going out the door and our business in a strong position. But but I'll say that in March, when suddenly we were faced with the prospect that half of our turnover was going to evaporate overnight, given that we did a big Sydney farmers market called Carriage Works. Mold attendees will know that that's where that's where that's where the event has been held in Sydney in previous years. So the weekly farmers market there was uh, was called off and is still not back. We expect that that'll be back in September sometime. Our biggest farmers market, gone. Our restaurant customers, who we put a lot of effort in building up relationships and a network of, you know, we pretty much every fine dining restaurant worth its salt in Sydney has used our cheese on its menu at some stage. So we were heavily invested in the hospitality industry and that evaporated overnight. So we basically had to find 
a home for 50% of our cheese. We were really lucky that we opened up a little outlet, a little farm gate shop in our main street at Robertson. And for people around the country, Robertson, Robertson sits right on the edge of the escarpment, uh, of the Illawarra escarpment. So you've got Wollongong down the hill. You've got Robertson right up on top of the mountain. And behind Robertson is the southern highlands of Sydney. So Barrel, Mossvale. And roughly this area is halfway between Sydney and Canberra. So Robertson tends, because it's the only passageway from the Southern Highlands through to the coast, it gets a lot of traffic. We wanted to have a little outlet so people could reliably get our products and we could introduce our products to a new audience without even knowing that COVID was on the horizon. So we opened that up just before Christmas and pretty much we thought we'd we'd made a bad decision um, because there were bushfires. And during that time, during that time, we actually had to take a whole bunch of our sheep off the property because we were quite fearful of our own property being in the path of the bushfires. So the shop wasn't getting any any business. But luckily, luckily we did open our shop because it's been very, very well supported. And then as soon as COVID hit, we put the entire shop online. And we were able to help people make up their own cheese and provisions box. We're not doing so much of that at the moment, but we were really able to pivot our business away from hospitality and into retail for that short amount of time. And that got us through. So um, thank the Lord for that. Can I clarify the shop is ongoing? The the shop is ongoing. So it, and it does, it, and we're really pleased with the amount of support from both locals and tourists coming through Robertson that, that come to the shop. We only open Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but it, it's something that's working out really well for us. Well, that's wonderful. And we were talking earlier about um, the seasonality of sheep. How do sheep operate? Sheep are just such a wonderful animal to work with, you know. I mean, the, one of the lovely things about living in the country is living with the seasons. and Sheep are the ultimate seasonal animal. So I'll take you through. So what happened? What's happening right now is the the sheep are in their last month or two of of pregnancy. So they are due to give birth. The first ones come pretty much straight after the winter solstice. So the back end of June, we start to get the odd the odd lamb hitting the ground, and then the bulk of them come through mid late July. As soon as that as soon as that happens, the farm is thrown into absolute chaos. There's obstetrics and lambs and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an absolute crazy time of the year. What we do is we tend to leave the lambs on with their mums for a day or two. And then what happens is we then start to bring, we bring them all in and at night we separate the lambs we bring them up into a huge, well, our shearing shed becomes a huge nursery. The lambs have got everything they need. They've got hay and pellets and water and the mums are turned back out onto pasture. In the morning, they'll come in, they'll be milked and the lambs are given back to them. It's one of those amazing things. So imagine this, imagine you've got 150 sheep at one end of the yards and imagine you've got a few hundred lambs at the other end of the yards and you open the gate and you let them all back to each other. And sometimes it's dark, it's smelly, loud. How the hell, how the hell they find each other is, is still a complete mystery to me. But 
literally within about 15 minutes. They're all matched back up to their own mothers. They've all found each other. They're all suckling happily. And then they, they spend the day with their mothers in the sun eating you know, the fresh green pick of spring. So it's a, it's a really lovely system where we share that milk with the lambs. Can I touch on that pro- process just for a moment? Why do you separate the lambs from their mothers? There's a number of reasons. The first reason is that the sheep will produce far more milk than the lambs can drink. So it's really useful for us to be able to get half the milk and give half the milk to the lambs. That works nutritionally for them. The other aspect is, of course, that at night there are foxes, which our friends in Tasmania don't have to deal with. But here on the mainland, there are foxes and we need to be able to keep the lambs safe from those foxes and the best place for them is tucked away safe and sound in our shearing shed. When the lambs do get bigger, what have they got to look forward to? One thing that is really working for us at the moment, the fact that we've had plenty of autumn rainfall and we sowed quite a few pastures and we've got lush emerald green, annual ryegrass, Italian ryegrass, oats. So there's plenty of feed here to take us right through winter and into early spring. So we know that we're going to grow out some really good lambs this year. We, we know that we're going to have a fantastic start in terms of milk volume. So things are looking up. Now that you've got all this wonderful milk, I do have to ask the cliche question, what makes a really good cheese? It is a cliche, isn't it, that you would expect that every cheesemaker will then answer by saying fantastic milk. But but it is true. And I, people might be interested in that, in that sometimes when you get volatile flavours or when you get off flavours in in a cheese, so for instance, if a cow milk cheese tastes particularly rancid or a goat milk cheese tastes particularly goaty or a sheep milk cheese tastes particularly woolly, quite often that's because the milk has been handled roughly. It may have gone through lots of pumps. There may have been lots of foaming in the tank, especially where bulk milk is used. Quite often, milk has got to go through as much as half a dozen pumps before it finally reaches the vat that it's made into cheese. So look, we're really lucky that with our cheese, really, there's only one or two pumps of milk and it's and we treat it very, very gently. We chill the milk straight away as soon as it's left the receival vessel, which is dairy speak for the tank that sits underneath the vacuum lines that go onto the teats. So when you've got milk that's handled really very, very gently, then you typically end up with a much better cheese. But more than that, I think that Cressida and I live in this place where we treat everything very gently. We treat our animals very gently. We take a gentle approach to the way we manage the land. And it is beautiful land that we live in here. It's very high rainfall. We get almost two metres of rain a year, so there's really lush pasture. It is beautiful. And so we really think that all those aspects, the climate, the animals, the pastures. We believe that all those things combine to create a a special milk, which is why we're so passionate about heading down the raw milk path, because we really want to honour the quality of that milk as much as we can. So what you're saying is really that the milk does need a delicate approach. It's absolutely accurate to say. In fact, I'll go one step further and, and say that when we make a raw milk cheese, like for instance our Yarrawa, we know we know exactly what the sheep have been eating, 
We know the season in which the milk has been extracted. We know that there are going to be different microbes that are hanging around in the cool dryness of winter compared to the hot humidity of summer. So I suppose what I'm saying is right from the very micro level with bacteria and and the microbiome that is around the farm and the factory, right through to those macro factors of season and lactation and animal. I don't think there is another food stuff that can so accurately represent the entire of the farming system in a particular product as cheese does. So, Michael, I am very familiar with the idea of wine and terroir and expression of land, but what you're telling me here is that your, the cheese you produce is an expression of the land that you and Cressida are on. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. I really would like to see many more raw milk cheeses, not just cooked curd raw milk cheeses, but also the other type of raw milk cheese where there's been no cooking at all. How are people responding to raw milk cheese in Australia? I still think that there's a little bit of confusion. I think we need to come up with some better nomenclature so that we can understand to sort of explain to the public, you know, the difference between an uncooked raw milk cheese and a cooked raw milk cheese starts to get a bit unwieldy. And I don't know if we go down the path of, for instance, in wine, they start calling things natural, unfiltered. I, I'm just I'm just not sure that we've got the education piece right. But then again, there's just not a lot of people making raw milk cheese. There's only, I think, one or two of us that have been approved for making raw milk that hasn't had the curd cooked. After three years, I think uh, we're just starting to get it right. It's not like you can just take a conventional recipe and apply it to a raw milk context either. Like it, it, it actually takes a long time in product and development. So I think cheesemakers are still on a journey and when we're a bit further down the track I think we'll probably be able to educate our um, our market a little bit better. You've said that there are only a handful of cheesemakers in Australia making raw milk cheese. How do you lobby for change? We've been working with the food authority so I think that there are two approaches. There has been one approach where people become belligerent and fight and become dogmatic about the right to make raw milk cheese. It doesn't work. It just, it, it simply just creates an adversarial approach with, with food authorities and it, it doesn't get anybody anywhere. Mm. So we took the approach where we worked very, very closely with the food authority, as did ASCA, the Australian Specialist Cheesemakers Association. And we, we worked with the authorities to come up with the science that underpins our ability to make raw milk cheese. So a very brief explanation is that a conventional cheese is pathogen-free because you pasteurise the milk. Yeah? yeah, A raw milk cheese is, is safe to eat because the pathogens have been inactivated or killed off through a maturation period rather than a heating function. So for instance, if we can keep a cheese for three or four months at say 12 degrees, then what we know is that even if there were pathogens at the start of the process, mm -hmm. by the end of it, the pathogens will have all died off because they can't live in a salty, acidic environment. They simply give up and die because they're unable to reproduce in a cheese that's got that salt, that acid and that dryness to it. They simply die off or inactivate. And that's a very particular and well-documented scientific process. It's the same process that salami makers use, and it's the same process that you use to make raw milk cheese. And it's there's a lot of statistical modelling that goes that sits behind it. 
Mm-hmm. So we can, we can statistically model out for how long and at what temperature it will take to mature a cheese such that it is clear of pathogens by the end of it. That, that's geeking down about it all. But it's important that people know that raw milk cheese is not a matter of crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. There's actually scientific underpinning that helps us get to a point where we know that the end product is not only delicious, but it's absolutely clear and safe. So what you're saying is that there's nothing to worry about and we should just celebrate more and more Australian raw milk cheese. Speaking of delicious cheese, your Bloomy is going to feature in a Mould Cheese Collective box. Can you tell us about it, Michael? Now, with the Bloomy that's coming out, there is a confession that we're going to make, which is that there is a mix of cow milk and sheep milk in there. Because as we were talking about before, the season is such that we're right here at the end of the season where there's very, very little milk. But what Bloomy is, it's a soft lactic cheese. So that means that it's been fermented overnight and that it spends a further 24 hours draining. So you end up with this beautiful little disc. Over the next two or three weeks, um, under relatively warm conditions, we get this sort of brainy, wrinkly, ivory exterior that grows on, on the outside of the cheese. And what that does is it takes what was a fresh cheese and if you ate that as a fresh cheese, it would be pillowy and clean and, and uh, wouldn't have a lot of aroma. But then what the, the little wrinkles, the white wrinkles that we grow on the outside are going to do is they're going to lengthen the palate. It's going to become more aromatic as it gets older and it'll start to go gooey beneath the rind. What we've done with Bloomy to just highlight those recalls and to just enhance that sort of brainy appearance on the outside, we've dusted it with a little bit of ash. So the peaks of those wrinkles stand proud with a little bit of ash on the outside. So when people dig into a Bloomy, there's going to be a little bit of gooiness on the outside and there's going to be chalkiness in the middle and it will be absolutely delicious. This sounds so good. So what am I having with this? Am I scoffing it? Can I say scoff? Or am I doing bread, crackers, fruit paste? What? What am I doing? I'm a big advocate of the scoff. We're purists. We, we tend to sort of eat the crackers separate to the cheese. <laughs> you know, I just, when we eat cheese, we eat it by itself. But I think it wouldn't go astray to have, you know, some sliced apple or pear beside it. I think that it would also go very, very well to have a crisp, dry wine, like like an aged Hunter Semillon that's got some to- toasty notes in it, or perhaps even Claire Riesling that's a little bit minerally. Something else that would go well is a, a whiskey that's maybe matured in a sherry cask or something like that. People might be surprised that whiskey goes really well with those soft, creamy cheeses, but it really does. And if I was to have a drink with the Bloomy Michael, do you think a bit of a touch of Starwood whiskey? who also happen to work with the Mold Cheese Collective, would be appropriate? Starwood are doing an absolutely fantastic job. They do have whiskies that are that are matured in red wine casks and sherry casks, and I think that, that would be a perfect accompaniment. Hey, Michael Keynes of Pecora Dairy, thank you so much for the chat today. That was just extraordinary. I have learnt a lot, We've and thank you for being so generous with the information you've shared with us and for sharing stories about... You, your farm, your sheep and your family. And thank you so much for being part of the Mold Cheese Collective. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Hilary. Hey, thank you for listening to the Mold Cheese Collective podcast today. My name's Hilary McNevin. It's been a pleasure to be a guest host for today's podcast and no doubt I'm going to be stealing this microphone again. I think that can be arranged, Hilary. And thank you so much for taking the time out to host today's podcast. 
As you know, we're all about sharing the good word about the best cheesemakers in Australia. We have a heap more interviews to come, so be sure to stay tuned. But until next time, cheers. <laughs>